When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Zeba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs and a skin of wine. The king asked Zeba, Why have you brought these? Zeba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. The king then asked, Where is your master's grandson? Zeba said to him, He is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks, Today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Zeba, All that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Zeba said. May I find favour in your eyes, my lord the king. As King David approached Barun, a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out from there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera. And he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out, get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. But the king said, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, Curse David, who can ask, Why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood, is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. The king and all the people with him arrived at their destination exhausted, and there he refreshed himself. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel was with him. Then Hoshea the archite, David's confidant, went to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king! Long live the king! Absalom said to Hoshea, So this is the love you show your friend? If he's your friend, why didn't you go with him? Hoshea said to Absalom, No, the one chosen by the Lord, by these people, and by all the men of Israel, his I will be, and I will remain with him. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve the son? Just as I served your father, so I will serve you. Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give us your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel answered, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days the advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. That was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice.
morning. Uh, our New Testament reading this morning is from John chapter 15, verses 12 to 15. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his father's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Thank you, Simone. Thank you to the uh, array of voices, some of which you may have recognized for the first reading. I don't know about you, but I do get a bit distracted by going, oh, is that so-and-so reading that bit? Um, some years ago, um, I was given the advice that uh, a gentleman remains a gentleman in spite of the conduct of those around him. So you can be in the midst of ungentlemanly conduct but you can choose to remain the gentleman. Applies equally for the lady. And I guess um, the reason that comes to mind is uh, looking at the impact of those many people who interacted with King David um, in this passage and during the course of his journey to get here. God has anointed and appointed then and, that and now those he's chosen as his authority. David wears the crown of the king of Israel, but of course has been usurped by his son Absalom. Uh, Jesus is the eternal king of kings, and he has chosen to call us his friends, those who are following him and do as he commands. And the Lord Jesus throughout his lifetime constantly in his life and ministry, inquires of his heavenly father. He prays. And David began with a good pattern of inquiring of the Lord. But we do see that during the course of his life story, he tends to lose that pattern and consequently ends up being pulled this way and that by those around him. And his judgment is impacted by the conspiracy of those around him. So I guess the challenge for us today as we look at these passages, um, the big idea, so to speak, is um, to trust God is to love one another. To trust God is to love one another. To know that when the vertical relationship is secure, we are free in all circumstances to still continue to look to the good of others as our Lord Jesus himself has done for us. We're gonna look at uh, these two passages under three headings. The first one is out of Jerusalem, which is verses one to 14. We follow the path of David. And then we look back to Jerusalem, what's going on in relation to David's kingdom uh, in the second half of the two Samuel reading. And then we're gonna have a look at Jesus in Jerusalem, which will take us to the reading we had in the Gospel of John. Man, don't we need the Lord's help <laughs> in these things? Every day, let me pray. Father God, we take a moment to remember whose we are. 
for the privilege it is to be called friends of the King of Kings, to remember that he is the King and to remember that he has called us friends. We're very aware of our frailties and our failings, Father, but we rejoice to know that we are beloved to you regardless of what we might think and say and do we can be assured of the security we have in Jesus who laid down his life for his friends. Please would you teach us from your word this morning in the power of your spirit who is at work in us. Would you help us not only to have minds captive to Christ, but also would you inspire us to respond in what we would say and what we would do that others might see Christ in us and that we might be affirmed to know that to trust God is to love one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, just before I get started here, I can't contain myself. I have to share this news with you, as I did at 8 o'clock, but it's really been on my mind. Um, On Friday night, uh, some of you were here in this room, but for those who were not, it was full In fact, we had to put out every single chair that we have in the building, and there were still two people on a chair because Christ for the Coast took place, and we had over 600 youth and leaders from local churches in this room, and the gospel was preached, and songs were sung, and prayers were prayed, and fellowship was had, and then at the end there was a call to those who would like to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we forget that God is a big, big God, we'd set up for a certain number of people to come through. I don't think there was one leader who was not surprised at the fact that 60 or so kids committed their lives or recommitted their lives to the Lord Jesus. Praise God. Aslan is on the move. The Spirit of God is at work here amongst us and across the Illawarra. What joyous news to be able to share. We've now got a problem of following all these young cats up. Would you please pray that there would not be one person who is slipping through the cracks that the Lord would bind the evil one, that he might not prowl around and find one of them, but rather each and every one of them would know assurance in Jesus. It's quite something, isn't it? Out of Jerusalem, David here in verses 1 to 14 is leaving Jerusalem because as we heard, the promise of God made through Nathan to David is that the sword would not depart from his house as a consequence of his sins. Yes, David had been forgiven by God such that he could write Psalm 51 and know that his sins were forgiven, but there are consequences for our actions in life's experience. And David, of course, had seen this sword now go across to his son Absalom. David is leaving Jerusalem to cross the Kidron Valley because he's had to leave. Absalom had killed his firstborn, Amnon, for his sin against Tamar. And Absalom had conspired with others to challenge David for the throne of Israel. And David has already, in the story, encountered many people on his way from Jerusalem into exile. We hear the story of these encounters, and we have the sense of him being pulled and pushed by these people. The meeting with Ittai the the Gittite in chapter 15 showed us a man who was loyal to David, 
and to whom David had a commitment. And because Ittai was with him, he went with him and took with him uh, what turns out to be a small nation of some thousands of people. Zadok and Abathar the priests, uh, David meets in chapter 15 too, but they would remain in Jerusalem as the fifth columnists. Loyal to David, but apparently still able to serve under Absalom in the city. And finally, Hushai the Archite, in chapter 15, we see him meet with David as he reaches the summit, and uh, David prays prayers to God that there might be the opportunity for the counsel of Absalom's chief counselor, who we'll meet in a moment or two, that that counsel would be flummoxed, that it would become folly. And Hushai rocking up is the answer to David's prayers, as he would then be in Jerusalem to enable that to take place. We'll see more of this in just a moment or two, but David has met with some loyal, faithful people on the way, and then he begins to meet with a bunch of others that we read about in chapter 16. Ziba the suspicious servant. David has arrived on the summit with his entourage. It's been an exhausting walk up the hill. From the summit of the Mount of Olives, though, you can see the full sweep of the city of Jerusalem in that day. And once settled and exhausted on the summit of the Mount of Olives, what would you really want at a moment like that? Wouldn't you just love somebody to rock up with a salubrious picnic? Well, here comes Zeba with what was a chock-full manavan of treats. And he rocks up and says, hey, David, these are for you. Ziba, you may recall, is the servant of Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. And David had instructed Ziba's family to serve Mephibosheth. I knew I was going to do it again. Mephibosheth. <laughs> Say that 10 times in a row. And um, David had left Ziba to, to serve Mephibosheth's family because Mephibosheth was lame. And yet here he is. It seems like a very great kindness of Ziba to come laden with all these nourishments, but David is suspicious. Motivation is everything, isn't it? David has his doubts about Ziba. And in fact, when we read ahead, which of course David could not do, but we do see in chapter 19 that actually Ziba is a suspicious character. David says to him, what is all this here for? Meaning, I think, surely this doesn't even belong to you, verse three. That this is, this is the material goods of, of the one whom you serve, Mephibosheth, the son of my, my friend, Jonathan. Where is your master's son? Uh, David asks after Mephibosheth, and Ziba, in this kind of sly way, answers truthfully and falsely. He says, he's in Jerusalem, verse three, true. But then he says, he's hoping the house of Saul will return. False. And then, in the light of this discouragement, and you know, I still haven't got a clear answer on why David does this. He then hands Jonathan's inheritance that was with Mephibosheth over to this servant Ziba. Was David deceived? Did he kind of get hooked in? Or perhaps he was so weary and exhausted, he, he was caught when he was not perhaps on his game. You remember at the very beginning of 
to Samuel, he's inquiring of the messenger. He asks some very direct and penetrating questions. He's, he's like a, a lawyer. But at this point, he just seems to roll over. I don't know what the answer is in terms of the motivation for David in that moment, but he did make a very big decision at a very low moment. And I wonder, although this isn't the big idea of this sermon, whether we too need to be wary of those bearing gifts and paying homage. We too need to be wary of making significant decisions when we are weary and exhausted. Well, we move on in the narrative from Ziba to Shimei, the aggressive adversary. For if Mephibosheth was not hoping for the rise of the house of Saul, there is a man who rocks up who really does want that house reinstated. In fact, I was tempted to call him Shimei the annoying. He's like, he's a recurring character as well in the story. He keeps rocking up like, you know those series where you get that character who comes back again and again, a bit like a bad smell. He appears in Jerusalem in chapter 19 in 2 Kings 2. He's there at the deathbed of David and then he's even there at the coronation of Solomon. Somebody, somebody just wants to say to him, just go away. Because here this guy rocks up and he bursts out in an angry rage at David and he starts pouring curses out. And then he even, and he's described as ambidextrous here, so he's kind of got a stone in one hand and a stick in the other, and he starts pelting David. It's a pathetic little scene in a, in a way, really. Here you've got this sort of singular crazy dude. You've got David and his mighty men of Israel, and it, it just seems like a bit of a sort of, you know, <laughs> David and Goliath in reverse situation. But he does make some serious accusations of David, verse seven. You are a man of blood. He makes the accusation in relation to the house of Saul. He says to David, in effect, you are responsible for the murder of Saul and Jonathan. That's a false accusation at one level because it was Joab and Abishai who killed Saul and Jonathan and Abner. Chapter three, verse 27. But in another way, of course, when the men of the king effect the lives of the subjects, the king is behind it. And I think the kind of irony in this piece of the story is that there's Shimei throwing curses down on David for the fall of the house of Saul and saying, I hope the house of Saul rises again. But David doesn't receive it like that at all. Even though the charges are not directly true, David does see the Lord's hand in this crown conspiracy. As I said, as we were reminded, Nathan in chapter 12, verse 11, God said through Nathan, I will raise up evil against your own house. Your house will be divided. And that is true. And David's experience here is that he sees the truth of the words of Shimei in relation to his own house. His house is a house divided. He is a man of blood within his own house. And Whilst on the one hand, God has covered David's sin with Bathsheba, verses 13 of chapter 12, and has confirmed in Psalm 51, that he still lives with the effects of those sins in his lifetime, and so do his children. And it makes us wonder what will happen in relation to the promise that God made that David's kingdom would be established forever, chapter seven, verse 12. Just take a moment to imagine the scene again. 
David and his weary entourage of travellers, Shimei on the hillside, pelting rocks and curses. Abishai is a man of action, isn't he? In fact, I've called Abishai, Abishai the headlopper. Abishai with his brother Joab, David's nephews, tend to have a bit of a shoot first, ask question later's policy. And, and Abishai basically says to David, King, how about I just go chop off his head? Actually, one of the commentators, Del Ralph Davis, rather cutely puts it this way. He says something like, in Abishai's mind, a man with his head chopped off will curse no more. But David looks at them and says, you sons of Zeruiah, reminds me of you sons of thunder. See, David recognizes the words of Shammai as reflecting God's purpose. A reminder for the reader of God's sovereignty that is found in both good and evil. Evil never trumps God's good purpose. But God can still choose to use evil things for good. That's not to say, of course, that evil is good. That's not to say that evil is justified by good. Evil remains evil. But under God, we can see sometimes how he uses evil things for good because that's the kind of guy God is. And David looks at Shammai and he says, let him go. For if he is speaking with the authority of the Lord, his words are true. Plus, think about the context we're in. We're in exile because my own son is rebelling against me and seeking my blood. And it may very well be in David's mind that Absalom might be God's agent for his house to fulfill the promise that had been given by God. And I can imagine David perhaps in his mind thinking the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, those are the three men, Ziba, Shimei, and Abishai. David arrives wearied yet refreshed uh, with his entourage, verses 13 to 14, they're at the River Jordan, quite exhausted. Zeba's offered suspicions, Shammai's offered cursing, Abishai's offered violence. It's probably time to take a break and be refreshed. What a great thing it is that Zeba brought the caravan full of wine and grapes and treats. Just imagine there David sharing uh, this lovely picnic with his followers. But oddly, Shammai stays there throwing stones and curses. So we think to ourselves, why is he still there? Why does God allow David to be cursed and stoned for his faith in him? Brothers and sisters, again, not the main point, but let's just think about why is it sometimes that God lets people remain in our lives to curse and stone us because we are friends of the king? Only because in the end, they are enemies of the king. Well, we're taken now back to Jerusalem. And we see in verse 15, Absalom and all the people and the men of Israel came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel came with him. Uh, just for comparison, David is weary with his little motley crew. It seems that the men are described as being refreshed. The shofar has sounded. Absalom has, in effect, been declared king, chapter 15, verse 10, and he had a strong army. But better still is his shrewd counselor named Ahithophel. 
By chapter 15, we had learned that Ahithophel was a loyal counselor to David, but he seems to have switched sides and gone loyal to Absalom. Do you wonder why that might be? It's wonderful, isn't it, how the word of God gives us, when we read carefully and rely on cross-referencing and all those wonderful tools that we've been given, that we can find some of the answers to these questions. Why is he law to Absalom? Well, we see in chapter 11, verse three, that Bathsheba's father was Eliam. And we see in chapter 23, verse 34, that Eliam's father was Ahithophel. So notice who was the granddaughter of Ahithophel? Bathsheba. Do you think there might be a reason for her grandfather to have a bias against David? Look at how quickly he's gone to Absalom's side. And, and what the narrator's doing is creating a real tension for us to consider as this battle is about to begin. And we'll hear more about the outcome of that next week. But for the meantime, we meet Hushai again, the supportive spy. You remember Hushai, David's friend? The answer to David's prayers, who now was sent back to Jerusalem. We met him at the Mount of Olives. David had prayed for the confounding of the council of Ahithophel. Hushai became the answer to David's political prayer. And Hushai walks into Absalom, and Absalom kind of says, well, what are you doing here? I thought you were a friend of David. And Hushai gives this extraordinary response, like a real spy would. He employs espionage and doublespeak. And he says, long live the king. And we immediately say, well, which king? Did you notice as it was read for us that Hushai never gave a name? He never said, I'm loyal to David. He never said, I'm loyal to Absalom. He simply said, I'm loyal to the Lord's choice. It's beautifully rendered. It shows us quite clearly that Hushai will remain loyal to David when we read it from that angle. But that's not how Absalom reads it, is it? Absalom, he's kind of one of those guys who tends to get quite puffed up quite quickly, goes, oh, well, Hushai is on my side, and that will ultimately be his downfall. He does not trust Absalom with the truth of his allegiance to King David, but he does manage to honor David and the Lord by speaking truth intelligently. And Hushai would faithfully serve David even in the presence of his enemy. And then we meet Ahithophel, the corrupted counselor, verses 20 to 23. I think it's important to listen to advice, especially where that advice comes from the word of God, but you and I know that sometimes advice from friends and family can be good advice. But context with motivation is everything, and everyone has an agenda, and it is the same with Ahithophel. He defected from David, and is now loyal to Absalom the usurper. And Absalom, notice, does not do what David did, which was to inquire of the Lord. He did not pray. He's basically landed in the palace with all the power, and then he turns to these two counselors and goes, what do I do next? Absalom's advice is clinical as it is brutal. David left concubines to keep the house. Verse 16 of chapter 15. Again, I'm not entirely sure, and certainly there seems to be the 10 concubines and the 10 tribes and all sorts of correlations there, but it doesn't seem a very good idea to leave the concubines to keep the house safe. And in fact, Ahithophel kind of 
puts the knife in with this awful, horrible suggestion that Absalom should sleep with all of David's concubines. But in fact, it has a precedent in God's law because when we read Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20, we see that whilst it's not mandated by the word of God, it is described that uncovering a father's nakedness is kind of the coup de grace, the worst insult that a man could do. And so Ahithophel here is saying to Absalom, the worst thing that you could do for your father right now is to sleep with his concubines publicly because that will show the depth of the rift that your relationship is utterly unreconcilable. Which not only serves the good of Absalom to make his point, but notice how it also favors Ahithophel in the event that David and Absalom might be reconciled. The worst offense of a royal son to his father. And Ahithophel wins this round. Hushai will have to wait until the next scene to give his counsel and have it. But for now, notice that Ahithophel's counsel is so well regarded by both, it is described, verse 23, like this. Advice Ahithophel gave was like that of one who inquires of God. It was how both David and Absalom regarded all of Ahithophel's advice. Ironically, the advice of Ahithophel did accomplish the promises of God. And again, evil advice, valued both by Ahithophel and Absalom, God could use to achieve his purposes. This is in fulfillment of God's promise to David for the sins that he committed, that the house would be divided by the sword. And notice how the event of the concubines with Absalom takes place on the roof, that very roof from which David spied Bathsheba and the whole downward spiral of events began. Well, David is the king of Israel for now, and next week we'll see how it plays out, but we are set up with the expectation of who is gonna be the future descendant of David who will rule for all eternity, as we were promised in 2 Samuel chapter seven, that forever king from his line. Well, of course, ultimately that is fulfilled in the person of God's own son, Jesus, whom we meet in Jerusalem in the passage we had read for us from John. No doubt, as you've been hearing the story of David and the people that he's met, you may have been thinking about their responses to him. Perhaps even what your own response would have been if you'd been David in that story. But just as David met many people on his journey into exile, likewise Jesus. Jesus met many people in his life and ministry, and he always had an impact on them. In fact, everyone who meets Jesus has to have a response. Jesus met Zacchaeus, he met Jairus, he met blind Bartimaeus, Nicodemus, he even met Herod the Great and Pontius Pilate. All of them met the King of Kings. And Jesus meets people as God's son and speaks to our need and our guilt and our pride and our suffering, likewise to our prosperity, and he brings forgiveness and healing and faith and hope. And remember that Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives on that weekend, up to the Kidron Valley that he might speak alone with his disciples. During that night in Jerusalem, he spoke of friendship. He described faithfulness and loyalty lived out. 
He would express his commitment to them as the king and he would describe them as friends as he then prepared for that journey to the outskirts when he was readying himself for death on a cross. And he then consulted with them about how to live and he gave them this command. My command is this, he said. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you my servants. I've called you friends for all I learned from my father I have made known to you. Those friends of David were always friends of the king. He was always the king in God's eyes. We as friends of Jesus are friends of the King and God his heavenly Father chooses to call us friends and family. Brothers and sisters, when all the world around us seems to be in a flux and flurry, when we're unsure about the advice or the relationships that we have on the horizontal with friends, family, those who might appear to be moving around with agendas, motivation, context, at the end of the day, trust Jesus for forgiveness, trust Jesus for life, and he will entrust to us the most profound thing of all, himself, the news of his gospel. He will entrust us to one another, to love and care for one another as he has loved us. David trusted Ittai and Hushai. He took a different posture to Ziba, Shemai, Ahitophel, even Absalom. But the command of the crown is this, that to trust God is to love one another, to be willing to lay down our lives in his service and to lay down our lives for the good of others because he is the king and we can trust him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that the Lord Jesus laid down his life for us, that we might be called friends. By the power of your spirit, help us to rest and rejoice in this grace that you have shown us. But let us not neglect the command that the Lord Jesus gave us to love one another as I have loved you. Thank you for the startling news of around 60 young people who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that they were part of a cohort of around 600 kids. May it be that by the power of your spirit, they and we would love one another and see this next generation nurtured and grown in faith in the one who is king and friend. And may we find ways to grow in faith in you such that we would grow in faith in one another and trust you in these relationships for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.